1: And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today?
2: Well, our show is about cloud computing and a lot of really intricate technology and security issues. And guess what? We're going to be speaking with a military lawyer who happens to be a privacy and security expert, too, so that's really fun. Let me tell you a little bit about Major David L. Wilson, who is in the U.S. Army. He's spent the last 20 years serving our country as an active-duty attorney in the U.S. Army, and he spent the first 10 years of his military career representing clients as either a criminal defense attorney or, Um, are in administrative hearings, and a military prosecutor and a special assistant U.S. attorney. But during the last 10 years, David focused on technology and the law. He has provided legal advice and counsel to very high levels in the Department of Defense, in the areas of space operations in the law, cyber or computer network operations in the law, and international law as it applies to military operations. So that's pretty exciting. He was a legal advisor at the Army Space Command and the National Security Agency. He has an incredible background for all of his education and training. But also, he, aside from his undergraduate degree, his ROTC, his law degree, he also has an LLM in military law with a focus in international law. And he then received an LLM, which is like a master's in law, in intellectual property law with a focus in information technology law from George Washington University Law School back in 2003. He has so many different uh, uh, things that he's done in terms of getting licenses and, and security clearance, et cetera. He received his security and certif- uh, certification and his pending certification as a CISSP, which he'll explain, and an ISC2, which is coming up. David is scheduled to retire from the Army in September 2010, and he's going to be practicing information security and compliance law as well as get involved or be start up a business doing security consulting. And sure, he has a lot of great information for us and he has tremendous experience and you can find his blog at info-network-security-law-help.blogspot.com and you can probably just search david wilson's blog and find that as well thank you david for joining us
0: oh thank you maury for having me
2: well i know you are in beautiful colorado and we're, we're so thrilled that you joined us today and took your time out of your busy busy work so what's it like being a lawyer in the military?
0: Um, I'd have to say it's pretty fascinating. Uh, you do have a lot of boring downtimes And to set the record straight, it's not like the TV show being a jag. <laughs> uh, but um, we do do, I've done a lot of client services, um, like you said, prosecuting and defending, um, and a lot of advising commanders in combat zones on things like what targets are lawful targets to attack training soldiers on rules of engagement for combat and uh, various weapons and things like that. Um, We do weapons and combat survival training, and I've actually jumped out of airplanes.
2: Wow. I guess you're going to miss that when you retire all that excitement, huh? Uh,
0: I think I'm getting a little old to jump out of airplanes, (laughs) but the rest of it I'll miss.
2: (laughs) So what are your specialties in law now, and why don't you explain what you're doing?
0: Um, Like you said, I did... um, I learned recently that litigation in the civilian world means a lot of paperwork and discovery, so I'll say I did a lot of trial work because we're actually in the courtroom most of the time. Um, But in the last 10 years, I focused on information technology and information security law and uh, international law, and and I actually just did get certified in the CISSP, the Certification for Information System Security Professional, and um, so I've been focusing on that. I'm a member of the Information Systems Security Association, which is ISSA. And um, so I spend most of my time reviewing laws and policies and international laws and helping my clients, the commanders that I support, understand what they can and can't do in cyberspace. Wow.
2: So I, so congratulations on getting your CISSP. What, what is the ISC2?
0: Oh, that's the organization that gives that certification.
2: I gotcha. I gotcha. Okay.
0: That incredibly difficult test.
2: <laughs> so tell me, you know, I, I have my CIPP, which is the Certified Information Privacy Professional, which wasn't an easy test either, but I am sure yours was a lot harder. How did you get to be such a techie when you started out in criminal law?
0: Um, well, at about the, the mid-year point in my career, at about 10 years, um, I looked out into the future and tried to figure out what I was going to do and what I wanted to do when I either got out or retired and I just it just struck me that technology was the wave of the future this was in about 98 99 so I I focused my career in that area and um, I was uh, I went I was at Army Space Command where I did space control and international law I worked at NSA where I I did a lot of cyber and internet law and in uh, various assignments like that, and I just kept focusing in that area, and um, started to be recognized as somebody who had a lot of knowledge and information in that particular area.
2: Wow! So, uh, what about uh, space law? I mean, that that is pretty amazing. I know you had written something just recently on space law. What's What's that all about?
0: Um, I wrote a, a thesis. In, in the Army, you have to go through various schools, and um, the, JAG, the Army JAG school actually gives you a master's when you go through their, their one-year uh, school program, and you have to write a thesis. So I wrote my thesis on um, negating or neutralizing commercial satellites um, that are being used by our adversary um, against us. So, mm-hmm. for instance... Um, for
2: spying, you mean?
0: For spying, targeting, things like that. Um, Like during um, Desert Storm, the French satellite spot, um, Iraq was trying to buy images from that satellite to figure out where we were positioned. Mm. So I wrote this paper to analyze under international law what we could do legally to uh, deny them those pictures by either like blinding the satellite or um, telling France that, because they were an ally, or under some some type of uh, injunction or international law that they weren't allowed to sell those, uh, because they were uh, at that point they would be declaring themselves not neutral to the the conflict.
2: Interesting. So, Dave, did they sell them, or how did, or can't you say that
0: they never got them?
2: Oh, they never got them. All right, yeah. that's exciting. Yeah, and that's kind of like a privacy issue, privacy for our entire confidentiality for our country. Yes. So let's talk about how you approach security.
0: Um, I'm pretty conservative with security. Um, I grew up in New York, so I'm paranoid to start with <laughs> um, i I would have to say that <clears throat> with everything I've seen um, through my work and all the study that I've done, looking at the reports on what hackers do and can do um, I you know a lot of people don't approach security from a realistic perspective it, it seems to be a dichotomy between I want things quick and easy and I want them now and yeah I want them secure but a lot of times the I want it now overrides the let's keep it secure so I've heard stories of banks that didn't even have passwords and, um, and in the military um, it's really beat into us because we have to have passwords that have a certain length we have to have security training on a continuous basis and so we're constantly in the mode of keeping things secure and being alert. And Not to say that everybody's like that, but at least in all the assignments I've had, um, you had to be pretty alert about what was going on and what you, what you were doing. And there are a lot of inconveniences, but um, that's what you have to do to, to really make sure things are secure.
2: Right. So the discipline there in terms of security is very high. Yeah, I have I've seen, well, we see all these security breaches, you know, not just the, the ones where some hacker goes in, but we've seen security breaches for foolish things that people have gotten into, whether it's offline or online or just not being careful. So you're absolutely right. You've got to be conservative.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, and it's, you know, some of the, the really big cases up until recently weren't even um, security breaches through the Internet. Right. It was somebody left a laptop in their car and all the data, the laptop and all the data on it was stolen.
2: Oh, we've heard of that millions of times. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And even the Heartland security, you know, I mean, it's crazy. Yes. Now, there's a difference between security and privacy. Yes. And let's talk about how you approach privacy.
0: Um, well, I personally, I enjoy my privacy as I assume most people do and, and the privacy of my family. Um, but... I believe you have to balance your individual privacy with um, the security of you know, the masses, large groups, and so forth. And um, I guess the best example I can come up with, and I had this discussion with uh, one of our state representatives recently, um, I, personally I believe and uh, am a big fan of the, the cameras on city streets and especially the red light and speeding cameras. I served in Germany for three years, and they had them everywhere, and and it just became, you know, you just got used to it after a while, and so, and it really slowed people down, you, you barely ever saw people running red lights, because they knew the cameras were there, and, and if you did, it wasn't a judgment by a cop sitting on the corner, that light would flash, and you knew your photo was coming in the mail, and you couldn't deny it was you sitting behind that wheel, right, and, you know, and, out in public, you know, I think you have to you have to protect citizens. And if the you know, the cameras happen to see a crime or something going on, personally I, I don't see a big privacy issue there and I haven't had anybody uh convince me otherwise. I'm open to hear, you know, why people think that is a serious okay. privacy issue, but Okay,
2: I'll give you one. Okay. <laughs> well I can understand what people you know, like what that people say, okay, well, if you have the the cameras at the red light, that's one thing. But having cameras on all the streets and having cameras where you have it in a place where people might be gathering to protest or gathering to share information, and that can be used against them that say you were at this rally and use that against a person. and And that's the kind of stuff like from the Hitler regime, you know, who are you associating with? Where are you associating? And that, that is a privacy issue as to how, you know, the freedom, you know, freedom and privacy kind of go together and, and the right to gather and the, and the right to say what you want to say. I think those are the kinds of issues when that kind of information is gathered and kept and used for purposes that they shouldn't be used for. If you say we're only going to use this for criminal detection and you limit it to that, that's one thing, but that's part of the privacy principles. What are you collecting the information for? Is there going to be a secondary use? And if you absolutely could guarantee that there is no secondary use and it's against the law for any secondary use, then, you know, that that's a whole different story. Even with the, um, in, in London, when they had the bombs, you know, having it doesn't necessarily prevent crime it can help you maybe find the people who did it but it doesn't necessarily help you prevent crime because you have if you have cameras everywhere law enforcement can't see it so you know it's not a prevention and we need to talk about it maybe it may prevent some people but the people who really want to do it it doesn't prevent them they're just going to get maybe get caught more easily but again my my whole issue is What might you use that information for that you have no right to use it for? And how may the government or others use it in a way that maybe could stalk you, you know, follow you? I mean, we've seen things where I've heard people have found out that in people, for example, in the IRS that had access to information would end up stalking an Mm -hmm. Mm ex-spouse. So there are some privacy issues in there's always whenever you have privacy issues and security issues, there's always that delicate balance that you're talking about, which is, OK, so if we if we have some really good reasons to do it, how are we going to preclude those other reasons? And I think that's one of the delicate balances between privacy and security. How do you build in privacy into technology?
0: Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And, and I agree with those scenarios. Um, My issue is I don't have any problem with the camera being there, but like you said, how they use that information, that's where you have a a serious violation of privacy. And um, I guess coming from a military perspective, we have a lot of rules and regulations that tell us what we can and can't do with uh, data and information and intelligence that we collect. And it tells us what we can and can't collect and how long we can keep it and what can be done with it. And as one of the lawyers, I've had to do the briefings, and the briefings, I believe, because it's been a while, they're at least annually, maybe every six months or every quarter, that people who do this type of work have to have these briefings to remind them what the law says and what they can and can't do. And, you know, a lot of it goes back to the 70s when a lot of the spying stuff was going on and, and uh, there was, you know, Congress implemented a, a lot of different laws. The
2: Nixon era, after the Nixon era, yeah, yes.
0: yeah, yeah you know and then like you like you sort of mentioned if you have that camera there obviously it's going to be hooked to a computer system so you may not be able to control who's hacked into that system and is now using that camera to look around right um, so
1: i agree so there
2: are issues yeah mm-hmm. well you know i think one of the things that that you've been in the military for 20 years and you know the discipline of the military, which is really wonderful mm-hmm. because you have rules, you have regulations, and if anybody violates those, there's some real problems. Yeah. In the real society, and I, I guess I'm calling it the real world of, you know, what's going on here, look at what happened. We've had so many breaches of that people weren't following the rules, like in the passport um, remember when when there were violations by the passport people looking into uh, Obama where he had traveled, looked into his passport information. That was a privacy breach. Yeah. Or uh, you know uh, the the first lady, or or even um, you know Clinton, all, all those people. And then we've heard of you know the IRS where people have gone into the IRS and and have violated those things. I even had a problem with that with my ex husband's ex-wife actually went in and uh, went into my she worked for the irs and she pulled my uh, an audit for me wow. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what i'm saying to you is i i know you're coming from a military situation where there i think are many more uh d- discipline uh there's much more discipline and there's many more people looking over your shoulder so to speak than there is out in the real world of you know the IRS, even though even though a government agency or or businesses, we have a lot of dirty employees. In fact, from people that I've worked with in Orange County District Attorney's Office, sixty percent of what they uh, prosecute in identity theft is dirty insiders here.
0: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. So, so there, not everybody is as honest as you are, as disciplined as you are. So that <laughs> those are the kinds of you know things that worry me, at least with regard to these kinds of. Of surveillance issues.
0: Sure. Well, and, uh, I'm not going to say I'm the most honest, but um, I have to say that as I get ready to transition and move into the civilian sector and look at uh, commercial and security consulting, I'm a little apprehensive about the differences because you know there there is a a good amount of discipline when you're in the military and you have to follow certain rules every day and you just get accustomed to them. Right. So I'm a little nervous about what I'm going to find when I get into the corporate world and start working out there. And
2: yeah, I think, I think, yeah, no. And I think you're going to bring a a wealth of wisdom and a wealth of ethics there, but I think you might be disappointed in some of the ethics that you're going to find to be honest with you. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm afraid of as well. Uh, You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy, and we are speaking with a wonderful, brilliant attorney from the U.S. Army, Major David L. Wilson, who is a real techie. He's a security expert, a privacy expert, and he has been around a long time to tell us about some very fascinating issues in privacy and technology. So, Dave, I understand that you recently returned from the RSA concert, uh, co- conference. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us about the conference? And a lot of people don't even know what RSA stands for. So and, and talk about that and what the big topic was.
0: Okay. Um, RSA is a security company. And um, I know the last, I believe the last letter, the A, stands for alderman. But the three letters stand for uh, the first letter of the last names of three individuals, who I believe started the company. But uh, RSA has security conferences um, at least twice a year, maybe more. I know they just had the one in San Francisco a couple weeks ago, um, and they're going have, to they have one in London, I believe, and um, maybe somewhere else in the world. Uh-huh. Um, and it's um, security professionals that come in from pretty much around the world. There was about 16,000 people there, I think, at the Moscone Center, wow! And there's 250 presenters, and they just do briefings um, throughout the day for about a four and a half day period. And then you have keynote speakers like um, um, the director of the FBI was there, um, uh, Scott um, Charney from uh, Microsoft was there, uh, a gentleman from Symantec. So all the a lot of the big names from the security world. Are there as keynote speakers? And then you have people talking on different topics from law to government to very technical issues. Um, I sat in on a presentation where a gentleman was talking about um, what can be embedded in URLs. So when you think you're clicking on a URL in your uh, email, um, it's not necessarily taking you to that site that they're advertising. It could be a ghost site that has malware on it that's going to be downloaded to your computer.
2: Yeah, I've heard many times to always type in the URL yes. and never just use one that, you know, that, that you have somewhere on your computer. Just retype it. Correct. Retype it always for that reason. Yeah.
0: And the, and the big topic at the conference was uh, cloud computing. Okay. And um, some people you talk to say, oh, no, that's been around forever. And other people are like, what the heck is cloud computing? Right. And um, so they, they didn't get into defining cloud computing because the majority of the people there were familiar enough to have a semblance of a definition, um, but they did get into a lot of the der- different issues associated with cloud computing.
2: So for my audience, now we have students here at the university that may know what it is. We have business people driving by. We have privacy people listening. But there, I bet there's a lot of people who really don't even know what cloud computing is. So why don't you define it for us and give us some examples of, you know, what we're already doing in cloud computing that we may not even know about.
0: Sure. Um, I guess in my mind the easiest example is, like, if you have a Yahoo or Hotmail account, that's, that's a form of cloud computing because right. your email does not sit on your computer at home or at work. It sits on a server, um, like if it's Hotmail, it's uh, out in Washington State. And so you actually log on to their server and pull your email from there, look at it and then, uh, then you log off and your email, unless you actually save it to a drive on your own computer, that's where your email sits. And um, some of the different uh, types of cloud computing that are being offered are um, software as a service, infrastructure as a service, and platform as a service. And within those, you have things like storage, and that's probably what most people are familiar with other than email is um, if you've heard of, like, Carbonite or things like that, you can store all your data on a server somewhere out in what they say call is the cloud. And I guess they say it's a cloud because you don't necessarily know where it is that data is sitting.
2: It can float, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> yep. So it's out there somewhere, and you can access it. And I, I guess basically I haven't used all the different services, but you could just have a PC and, uh, you know, have all your services out in the cloud, you know, as long as you, you pay for them. And, and for companies, you know, who don't have the money to set up a whole network and have system administrators and everything they need, need to keep that network up and running, the cloud is a pretty good option, depending on what type of uh, data that you're running across your, uh, your networks and you're responsible for.
2: When people go on the like MySpace or Facebook, are they are they in the cloud there?
0: Um, I'm going to say, in my opinion, I believe yes. Yeah. Somebody may argue with me, but and and the reason I say that is I'm not an expert on the cloud. I I know a good amount about it. Right. Um, but also there's a lot of unknowns with the cloud. So you could ask four different people what cloud is, and you get four different answers.
2: Right. You know, you had said that there was a, a great quote from the Cloud Security Alliance in their document, and, and you had sent that to me. I thought that was pretty funny that it says, cloud computing is about gracefully losing control while maintaining accountability, even if the operational responsibility falls upon one or more third parties.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so so what does that mean legally? What if... if um, I guess who's ultimately responsible if there's a hacking into the cloud
0: well it it depends um again I'm not an expert on this but okay it depends on what laws you're talking about okay, but from what I've seen so far and i'll I'll just talk generically rather than getting into a specific law um, okay if you're and and I'll use some examples if you're like a um uh, you 're running credit cards, so you fall under the PCI DSS standards because there is no um, per se government regulation that says this is what you have to do if you 're running credit cards like if you're Home Depot or Lowe 's or something and it all depends on how many how many credit cards you run over a certain give a certain period of time
2: right so Visa MasterCard have set up these
0: standards exactly right um, you 're responsible for that information so if you 're running those those cards, and you've hired a, a, uh, a cloud provider to hold on to and secure all that data for you, um, my understanding is you are ultimately responsible, even if they get hacked because of their security. And um,
2: the buck stops with you, I guess, every, then you'd have indemnification rights. Yes. And, yeah.
0: you know, and for that reason, um, one thing that I've been advocating lately um, and, I, and I added, it because I spoke at RSA on a, an article I wrote on a different topic, but um, they asked me to put in an application slide. So when I, when I pushed it down to um, the user level, the application was, don't just know what the security is for your network and the data that you have on your network. You need to know what the security is of whoever um, is also carrying your data. So if you use a cloud provider, whoever your service provider is, upstream, downstream, You need to try and look at their security or build into your contract or service level agreement um, what steps so that if they have an incident, you get access to whatever happened very quickly, and you know, are they doing training, what type of security do they have, how often do they upgrade it, things like that.
2: You know, that's such an important point for those people who are driving by who are business people Mm -hmm. who Are not, you know, maybe they have medium-sized businesses, small to medium-sized businesses, and they don't have a real big IT department, and they outsource a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. They need to think about, and this is the kind of, you know, this is the kind of work that you're going to be doing when you retire, which is they need to think about what kind of contracts do I need to have that has, um, you know, who's responsible, what are they going to do, what are they going to match the same security standards that you're going to match, Are they going to be, are they going to indemnify you for any liability if, if they have a a breach or if they have somebody who does something negligent? So these are the kinds of things that are so important that people don't realize we, not many of us are high techie people like you are. And so when we hire people, we, we don't often really even know what to ask for unless we have somebody who's really guiding us. So that's, that's a really important issue.
0: And, and I guess a, a real good example is um, I don't know anything about finances and investing. And I, I have two choices. I can either learn on my own and then do it on my own, or I can hire somebody to do it for me. I have zero interest in doing investments. Right. That's why I invest with a company, and I rely on them to take care of that for me. And it's the same with security. You can either go out and start researching and learning it on your own, or you can hire somebody if you don't have the time or the interest. And, and I think, especially with the, the security stuff, you really have to have an interest in it um, because, like the lawyers that I work with, when I start talking to them about this stuff, their eyes glaze over and roll into the back of their heads and they tell me to get out.
2: <laughs> right. but But the truth is, even if you're a small or medium-sized business owner you still do kind of have to know what they're talking about. Oh, Absolutely. You you know, so one of the things that your security or privacy consultant can do is to help educate you. Yeah. So, yeah, you may not want to know all the intricacies of how something is done, but you need to know because if you end up in a in a lawsuit and you just, "Well, I didn't want to be bothered with it." You know, that's that's a that's a real tough one. So, yeah. you need to at least have some understanding of what you're doing and why it's important. And I think that's what the beauty of having someone like you around, so I think the military is really going to miss you when you're gone, that's for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: well, so, and, and that's what, when I get out, that's what I'm looking to do. I'm looking to help companies secure their networks from a preventive perspective rather than waiting till they've had an incident and, uh, and having to have somebody come in and clean it up. Um, I want them to understand the laws and regulations that may apply to them, um, help them set up a, a security policy and procedures, And put everything in place and do training and help them understand these are the steps you need to take to make sure you're secure. And at the very least, put them in the best position possible so that if they do, and and I say if, I should say when they have a data breach, because I think everybody will eventually, um, they are in the best position possible to fare well from that, keep their reputation intact, uh, not, you know, mount up legal fees and, and fines for various data breach laws and things like that.
2: So. And it's so important that they understand privacy too because let's say that they do have a secure system but they've had they've collected more information than they needed. Let's say they collected social security numbers and they really didn't need to collect social security numbers like yeah. for example with um with Blue Cross Blue Shield or any of the health carriers right now, you know, they don't use a social security number anymore for that being your account number. You know they stopped that years ago because of California law. So when if you have a you know a hospital that has all these social security numbers on there, they really didn't even need it. You know yeah. they really didn't even need it except for those people maybe who didn't have insurance. But so that's another issue is understanding that privacy, uh, you know, is really important as well. You can have security without privacy, but you surely can't have privacy without security. Correct. So it's it's kind of important. Let's talk about. Uh, some of the d- data there um so w- w- you know when we talk about where is data stored what mm-hmm. what uh issue is that what how important is that
0: um well it depends on the type of data that it is if it's if it's going to involve privacy uh, pii which is personally identifiable information um one of the issues with cloud computing is um let's say you're you're using Amazon or Google, and you're storing all your data on their servers, and they happen to have their servers in the European Union. The European Union has very strict privacy laws, so if um, and those companies will have to let the European Union know obviously if they're going to have servers there, they have to have some sort of um, uh, business license, and they I'm assuming again, I don't know for sure that the European Union will know what type of data is sitting on those servers. And you may not be able to move that data around as freely as you like because uh, the EU uh, restricts how privacy data is moved around and where it's moved to. So if there's a country that doesn't have as strict privacy laws as the EU, then uh, legally you're not allowed to move that data. Um, the, The U.S. has the Safe Harbor Act, which allows us to move some data back and forth. But the the EU late, uh, recently has changed some of their rules. And um, when you look on some of the blogs, some people believe they're going to be more restrictive. Some people believe it's just a, a codifying of the rules they already had. So um, th- there's a lot of, let's say, minefields and loopholes that you really got to watch out for and, and keep on top of.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've talked in the show about how, the, the laws in the European Union in protection, protecting privacy are really more stringent. For example, there is opt-in instead of opt-out so that, for example, a company can't sell your information without your prior permission or can't share that information without your prior permission. Um, and that's the standard in the European Union, whereas we had, for example, financial privacy, the, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, um, allows people to uh, allows companies to share information with their with um with their affiliates without, you know, without really any choice, yep. <laughs> except in California we do have a choice. But so that's the difference in opt out. There's a lot more of sharing of information without getting prior consent with Americans here than there is in Europe, where there has to be prior consent. So you know, I guess my view would be is to make it really, really easy to have information um, uh, for for companies that are international now. Any any little tiny company can be an international company. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, you could be a one person uh, company that that's that sells stuff everywhere in the world now on the internet. Yeah. So it just seems to me that if we had the the more stringent. Uh, Data protection that would sure be easier. You wouldn't have to do a bunch of them. Just go up to the, just raise the bar to their level. Mm-hmm. I don't think that'll happen. But yeah, <laughs> but you know that would make it easier, right?
0: Oh, absolutely.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about how you can ensure the protection of your or your customers' data in the cloud. That I think that's the most important thing to talk about now.
0: Mhm. Um, well. Um, The first thing I would say is um, there's a really great article out there that Dave Navetta wrote. He's uh, a friend of mine and a a partner in the Info Law Group. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you go to InfoLawGroup.com, I think it's .com, um, and look up Dave Navetta, he does a blog, and he did one on uh, security schedules. And in there he outlines all the things that you should put in the security. He calls them security schedules. You could also call them the contracts or the service level agreement and all the things that you would want in there to make sure that you are um, keeping your, your network secure and reaching outside of your network to whoever your provider is. Um, things like uh, I mentioned earlier, if, if uh, your provider has a security breach, um, how soon are they going to be required under that security schedule? To notify you, is it within 24 hours? Um, do you have access to their security plan, to the stats on um, their training, on the tests they run, the stats and the, the uh, results of any auditing that they have, things like that, so you can understand.
2: And can you do your own audit? You know, exactly. that's, that's yeah. a really important thing too, right? Yeah, and,
0: and I guess I would say, depending on how sensitive the data is, you may want to make it more strict Right. And, uh, you know, I guess if you think of it from a, a realistic perspective, do the Googles and Amazons of the world really allow you to do that? I think, I think there's enough choices out there that if you push them and they don't, you just move on to somebody else. Or if you're not comfortable with uh, their security posture, then you go find somebody else.
2: And, and I think they're, they're springing up all over. Yes. Let's talk about some cases. Can you, can you tell us about a couple cases?
0: Um, the, the one that comes to mind is uh, recently down in Texas. The FBI seized a server, I believe it, I don't have all the facts, but I believe it was from a cloud uh, provider, and the server had the data the FBI was looking for as well as all the data for another company who was just sort of an innocent, uh, uh, you know, innocent party to this case and they this company had contracts they had to fulfill so they went to court in order to try and get an injunction to prevent the FBI from taking all this data and the court said no the subpoena was valid sorry you're out of luck and they I believe they went about two weeks before they were able to work out a deal with the FBI where they turned over hard drives and the FBI downloaded the information to these hard drives for them so they could get back up and running, but well, they went two weeks without being able to fulfill any of their contracts.
2: Oh my gosh! So that could just bankrupt you.
0: Yeah. So I, you know, I haven't heard um, what the outcome was, but I would believe that at a minimum they were crippled, if not, um, you know, completely. Oh my devastated.
2: gosh! Could you imagine? Oh my! So if you have stuff in the cloud and then it's seized by the government and you can't touch it, then you are you're out of business. It could it could affect many, many companies at once, couldn't it?
0: Correct, yes. Oh my. And at the conference, um, the FBI did say that, no, they're, you know, they're working well with companies and you know, they're going to try and prevent this, but um, you, you can't take that chance. Right. And, I, and I talked to some of the uh, storage vendors at the conference and at least one of them said they store your data at your site and then at two uh, off-site locations for you. So if one of them goes down, you still have two backups.
2: Oh, well, that Which, would be important to know that you have one, if you have a business, that you store one of them at least at your site. So if something does happen and they have to sequester a, a, a whole cloud or something, at least you've got it.
0: Yes, but also for disaster recovery and business continuity. Right. You don't want to have it just at your site because no. like a hurricane or tornado or fire or something you lose everything right there, like, right? Uh, like what happened in Katrina and sure and with nine one
2: one. And yeah, and that's really good for hospitals that have you know medical care if somebody needs medical care. I guess I'm doing. I didn't realize it, but I guess you know I'm do, all my backup is in the cloud. You okay. know, I mean, I have double backup. I have backup in my office, but I also have backup in the cloud. Yes. So. I didn't even think about that it could be sequestered if, you know, lo- as long as I don't have a problem with my own backup, then I, see, it do- people don't realize even if you have a small office like I do, we-, we are, we are affected by the cloud.
0: Yes.
2: You know, even though I have my own email, I do sometimes use some of the email, like a Gmail account for, uh, for my radio show. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm operating in the cloud without realizing it. I'm up in the clouds. How do you like that? I, you know, a lot of people don't realize this. So if you're driving by or you're sitting in your university dorm room, you know, you're up in the clouds, guys. Yes. <laughs> so what issues exist with relation to conducting forensics on the data in the cloud?
0: Um, well, without getting into all the, all the issues over forensics, um, you have to, you know, when you, when you do forensics, You have to be able. You have to have access to that data right away. You want to capture it before it changes or something happens to it, because you have to establish a chain of custody. Um, You have to know. You have to get a picture of what it looks like um, as soon as you determine what has happened uh, in an incident. And you use the forensics also to determine whether or not there really was an incident, uh, a security incident, or um, if. You know, it was just anomaly or, you know, there was a, uh, an error with some of the, the uh, equipment that you're using. Right. Um, But you don't know, like, again, you don't know where this data is. And will you be able to get it quickly from your cloud provider or will it take, you know, days or weeks or what have you Um there was a gentleman, Andrew Froen, of Into Forensics, who wrote an article. And he didn't, most of the articles that I've read on this, they all see multiple issues and problems with forensics in the cloud. Um, he didn't seem to think there were a lot of problems with it, because he says, you can get, and it's true, you can have access to your data instantly. So you can download all the data to do the, the forensics on it right away. The problem is... Um, You may not have access to the metadata, which is data about the data, things like the timestamps that tell you when a document was created or accessed or modified, and some of the other um, registry data um, that is included when you create records on the computer and do things like that. But he said there are providers um, that he knows of that will um, allow you to have access to that and they will hold on to it for you. And they'll also put what's called a hash on your data, which is sort of like a stamp that will tell you if you compare the hash on the data that you pulled off to another record of the same data, you can determine whether or not it was altered. That, I could that's just imagine can in,
2: in some of these big lawsuits, like I, I'm thinking about like, A huge lawsuit like the Toyota lawsuit or something like Mm -hmm. that, where all of this e-discovery would be so insane when you've got, if you've got cloud computing with data, and then let's say the attorneys want to um, compare the data in the cloud with the data that you've got on your computer and see about the metadata, if anything changed. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I could just see this as a total nightmare. (laughs)
0: Oh, and there's still um, just prior to the um, the RSA conference, I attended the uh, American Bar Association meeting on information security, and um, there were there were two sessions, one focused on information security, and the other one focused on e-discovery, and uh, I I stayed with the information security group, but I heard some of the uh, conversations from the e-discovery. And it sounded like there was a ton of issues, and um, they're they're still just working through how to keep up with all the technology and and uh, and things like that. And then I had dinner with a guy who started his own um, e discovery company, and he seems to have figured out how to do e discovery for law offices and corporations and and do it pretty effectively.
2: Yeah, I'm just wondering about when somebody questions whether something was different at the home site than it is in the cloud and that they want to subpoena the documents from the cloud and then compare them to see the metadata. You know, I mean, I'm just, maybe I'm off base, but I just see that as some kind of craziness that could be just put a huge, huge cost into litigation for companies. I mean, I do a lot of expert witness testimony and I see the kinds of costs that, that people have in just defending lawsuits, and it's just they really need to have some good mediation in these fields because it's uh, it's just so expensive. And how do you how do you pull all this together?
0: It's yeah. just a- well, and and along those lines, you also have the issues of do the attorneys in the law firm do they understand all this technical stuff, and then um, do you have somebody one of the attorneys if you're if you're in front of a jury. Are they able to easily explain this stuff to the jury so the jury understands what's being presented to them and um, all the different issues and things like
1: that?
2: Oh, I know. Because, you know, the ordinary person doesn't understand all this stuff. And, and I, you know, I don't consider myself a techie. I think I know enough to ask pretty good questions about these kinds of things. And, and maybe some of my questions are kind of s- silly, but um, but I think they're the kind of questions that, non-techies would ask
0: oh absolutely
2: you know we're speaking right now with major david wilson who is an attorney with the u.s army he's also a security and privacy expert and he's been with the army doing fascinating things for 20 years and he'll be retiring and going out to the civilian world in september so we're we're lucky to have him now while he's still doing all these exciting interesting things which he plans to do even afterward Mm -hmm. so um By the way, we're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy. So what happens, um, you were talking about, for example, if there is a a disaster, okay, or bankruptcy, or what if the business, the cloud computing business actually goes out of business? What what about then? What what do you do?
0: Well, you could be out of luck. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh,
2: uh-oh.
0: So like we were discussing, um, the the best thing you can do right now is either have backup somewhere else or have a very strong contract or service level agreement or whatever document you're using uh, in place to try and um, guarantee, I don't know if you can guarantee, but try and ensure continuity of operations um, or at least um, some type of um, uh, financial um, uh, document that will you know allow you to be compensated for what happens if you know they go under and start so- and they they tell you sorry we're bankrupt nothing we can do you're out of luck
2: oh my goodness so it's always you know it's always a good idea to have multiple backups
0: yes but you know? it is expensive
2: It it is expensive but even for my radio show you know i i have multiple backups for just even when I'm recording. You know, because I always think of Murphy's Law, what if, what if. So some people don't even think about that yeah. when they're,
0: when they're well, doing something. And lately what I've been thinking about um, as I try and figure out um, the niche that I'm going to provide into the security business, I've been thinking about cyber insurance. And I did a search, and there, I think I found like one or two companies on the Internet that actually provide cyber insurance but it's probably a very good idea if you're not going to do your own research or you're not going to hire a security company to make sure you're secure and hopefully they'll they will provide you uh... some semblance of a a qualification or a guarantee um, that they're you know making you secure or um, you need to go out and look at cyber insurance because if you lose everything then at least you you have that backup and and that's really what uh, i think security is all about right now you can say ah, it will never happen to me or you can say it could happen to me i better do something about it um the old adage is you can pay me now or you can pay me later
2: exactly and I, I am so with you years ago i don't know i think about 15 years ago or more i had a big crash and um you know right after that i got i added to my business insurance that are I think I even had it, as a matter of fact, that it paid for them to recreate, you know, because it's expensive to just put it back together after it's been crashed, even if you do have backups. Do you know what I mean? So I do have that, but I know that I've worked with AIG, which is now called Chartus, and Chartus has insurance for security breaches. However, however, you can't just say I want a security breach you know, insurance that'll take care of me, you have to show that you're doing certain things to even be able to get that insurance. So no matter what, you still are going to have to step up to the plate even if you want insurance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you wrote an article on international cyberspace. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and why you wrote that?
0: Um, About a year ago, I had a little bit of time on my hands, not much. And uh, I was thinking about when Estonia and Georgia, were their networks were hacked into um, by using a denial-of-service attack. Mm -hmm. And um, a denial-of-service attack is where, um, in its simplest form, your networks are flooded with traffic so that you can't do anything. So basically your networks are either clogged up or they crash because of all the traffic that's being flooded into them.
2: Right. And I've tried to get in, for example, Bank of America. It's happened a couple of times where they go, we are everything's down. Yes, And you know that that's one of those attacks or something.
0: Yeah. And I started thinking about what what can a country do um, when that happens other than like what um, and it's a little more complicated what Estonia and Georgia did. But uh, for time purposes, basically, they did a self-imposed denial of service by blocking their networks off from the outside world. So within their countries, they could continue to do business, but they couldn't do business outside of their networks. Hmm. And um, if you think about it, the countries surrounding them, for the most part, were friendly neighbors. um, And so they didn't want to, and the the next hop back out of their networks is into uh, one of their friendly neighbor's countries. So under international law, they can't go to their friendly neighbor's countries into their networks and and do something or block the attacks because they're violating the sovereign integrity of that nation so i started thinking about what could they do in order to try and uh... in order to have more options than just uh... defending within their networks. and what i came up with was if we took the major hubs of the internet and there would be maybe a few hundred around the world um, and designated those as international cyberspace like one of the entry points into the country of Georgia um, came from Turkey. So if that hub in Turkey was considered an international cyberspace point, then the nation of Georgia, if they were attacked, they could go into that uh, hub in Turkey and block the attack there and allow the traffic to come into their network from other locations or to go around uh, the attack where they blocked it through that hub. Now, there's a lot of other technical issues, and I came up with a definition, and it was, it was part of an article that I had published in the Armed Forces Journal uh, last July. Um, but one of the big issues with that was the fact that these hubs are privately owned, like Verizon, AT&T, they own these hubs. Um, but in my mind, if we had sort of like a NATO organization that controlled these hubs and the private companies still owned them, these, the countries who are part of the organization would funnel money into those hubs to keep them up and running and healthy because of all the economic uh, that transfer through those hubs on a daily basis.
2: Oh, yeah, we're so dependent on that. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love your blog. I was looking at it, and I, I read on your blog that you think electronic espionage may actually become an act of war. Why don't you tell us about that?
0: Sure. Um, that, that's another title. I'm actually writing right now um, that I've been thinking about for about a year. And then when I saw the articles come out that, uh, you know, titles like U.S. may lose cyber war if attacked, um, I decided, well, it's probably timely to write that now. Um,
2: Especially while you're still in the Army.
0: Exactly. (laughs) And the conclusion I've come to in my mind so far, I haven't finished it yet, but is that I don't believe electronic espionage will ever rise to the level of an act of war. Um, simply because I see attacks in cyberspace as potentially having the effect of a nuclear war. If, let's say, the U.S. were attacked like um, China has been accused of stealing a lot of information or um, North Korea was accused of those cyber attacks on us and South Korea uh, last July, if the U.S. were to respond or retaliate to that with a, a greater cyber attack, then it's likely that whoever it was that attacked, or even if they didn't, because we couldn't really figure out exactly who it was, they may attack back, and then suddenly everybody's attacking each other back and forth, and then you have uh, mutual destruction in cyberspace. Right. So, But what I want to do is explore all the different issues and scenarios that could potentially occur and, and try and find how close we could possibly get to Um, that ultimate scenario based on uh, what's going on. And I see electronic espionage right now as just a move from the old Cold War human to human. It's now people sitting at keyboards trying to, you know, steal nation secrets and company trade secrets and things like that.
2: Yeah, you don't even have to have a satellite anymore, right? No, you don't have to read somebody's mind like they did, you know, and and during the Cold War as well. I mean, they they probably are still doing that kind of stuff too, but now it's just so easy. Yeah. And w- with the internet, we don't have a lot of time. Why don't you just uh, give what your blog is so people can go and visit it?
0: Sure. It's um, it's info dash network, dash security, dash law, dash help, dot com. Great. Um,
2: I just want to ask you, we only have about, oh, about a half a minute left, but I okay. just want to say, so um, what are your real plans for the future then in September?
0: Um, well, I'm looking, I'm, I'm doing some interviewing right now. Eventually I will have a, or be part of a security co- consulting company, Because, like I said, I want to combine the law and the security piece and try and help companies uh, secure their networks and their data and customer data from a preventive perspective.
2: Well, we'll have to have you back on then to tell us all the great things you're doing and give some great advice to all these companies that come by here, all right? Oh, I'd love it. All right. Thank you so much, Major... uh, Dave Wilson, you're terrific, and we will talk to you soon.
0: All right, thank you.
2: You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine, and also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. There you can see our upcoming guests, learn a little bit about them. You can download uh, podcasts. You can even see our previous guests and listen to their archived interviews right there. And you can write us emails about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Thank you. Stay private.
0: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.